0: Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. I'm looking for support in 2018 to keep the show going and have started a GoFundMe. If the show has been of any help to you on your writing journey, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating so that I can continue airing. Visit GoFundMe.com and search for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire to contribute. Today's guest is Liesl Shirtliff, New York Times bestselling author of middle grade novels Rump, Jack, Red, and Grump, and the upcoming Mona Lisa Key, first in the Time Castaways trilogy. Liesl joined me today to talk about being somewhat unaware of the success of her debut, following up an NYT hit, and the transition from writing being a hobby to becoming a job. What would happen if Queen Victoria was killed early in her reign? The Queen of England, Coronation, by Courtney Brandt, features an alternate steampunk history of London starting in 1840. Will the new Queen's reign be over before it has a chance to begin? Download the novel to find out. Debuted in 2013 with Rump, the true story of Rumpelstiltskin, which brought you a much-coveted starred review from Kirkus. It's a great way to start your career, but I imagine it's a little bit intimidating, too. Did you feel pressure to follow up strong with your next releases, or was the feeling entirely celebratory? I was delightfully
1: oblivious to how well received Rump was. I think being a debut author, you, you don't always know what to expect. You don't even know what all the options are sometimes. It's like, oh, a starred review. I guess that's a really good thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really wasn't so aware of how difficult Kirkus could be sometimes. I didn't even really understand what state reading lists were. I didn't even realize what that was at first. So I think I was really oblivious and I felt very little pressure to live up to that with my second book because I just didn't really get it. I was so naive and innocent and cute. Uh, (laughs) There were different pressures with the second book. Writing under a deadline was really hard for me. I've gotten used to it now. I've kind of learned how to work with that. But I think a lot of authors kind of struggle with that sometimes with that second book. Writing under a deadline. At a certain point, there was a feeling of some high expectations to follow strong after Rump. Truthfully, my editor kind of put those on me. You know, you hit it out of the park with Rump, and we really want to follow up strong with that. There were pressures, but I don't know that they felt immediately Rump's success and good reviews and things like that.
0: You bring up writing under a deadline. That's very true, that suddenly it's a job. You're not just writing as a hobby. You're not just writing for fun and hoping that you can break in. You're writing because someone paid you for a book, and by God, you better turn it in on time. So that is scary.
1: And there's also this pride of like, I'm an artist. I don't create on demand. My editor, she's fantastic and I kind of said something like that to her, maybe not quite as snooty, but I said something like, it doesn't always come when I want it to come. And she said, sometimes the artists that are successful aren't necessarily the most talented artists, but they're the Mm -hmm. ones that get the job done. They're given an opportunity and they take it and they run with it. It's time to go. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and write some words. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it helped me. The ideas will come if you sit down and write, if you sit down and work. You can't just daze about all day thinking that something's going to pop into your head. Sometimes that happens, and sometimes you need to do that. You need to daydream a little bit. But there is also an aspect of sit your butt in the chair and write some crappy words, and eventually something good will come, and you can revise the crappy words into something good. But you can't revise from nothing.
0: That's the truth. And it is difficult to make that transition from being an artiste to being a business person, because that's what you are now. It's true. It's true. I mean,
1: I like to think of myself as both.
0: (laughs) We are definitely both, but that new addition of being a business person, it's a hard thing to learn how to balance because, yeah, I agree with you. Sometimes you are just sitting there unaware of anything creative flowing in you but it is there. You just have to mine it out sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I've become better at just to the point where if I pitch an idea and my agent is like, yeah, I like that let's get it in front of the editor. Can you write a synopsis? 15 years ago, it would have been like, no, because I have no idea what happens. All I did was say, hey, what about, and now I'm like, yeah, sure, because I'm just going to make it up. And I realize that now, part of it is just learning the business too, because I just need to put something in front of them that they can legitimately say, okay, we'll pay you for this, right? right. So... Knowing that
1: it'll likely completely change as you write it. They just want to know that you Absolutely. have something in mind, something that they can work with. And I've grown comfortable with that, too. At first, it was really intimidating to present something that I was like, well, I'm just making up a bunch of crap, and I have no idea if this is going to work or not. <laughs> My final product is always completely different from what I propose in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I probably change it several times as I'm going. I go back and forth. and I'm like, well, I think I want to do this instead. <laughs> I've grown comfortable with that. I think it's important to grow comfortable with making changes.
0: I think a lot of people, including writers that have only had one or two books come out, that they look at the establishment, they look at their editor and their house as being kind of the boss or really strict or like they're going to come down on you. And most of the time they do understand that you are a creative being and that a lot of the time you're just flowing And you can turn in something and they can buy a premise from you. And then when you turn in something that doesn't follow that premise, they're actually going to be cool with that because they understand.
1: Yeah. I feel like they're buying a concept and a voice and they know that the plot is something that's fairly fluid and flexible and they can work around, but they want to know that you have a solid voice and a strong concept that's marketable.
0: Rump is a tongue in cheek retelling of Rumpelstiltskin with the eponymous villain recast as a hero. What made you decide to take this particular fairy tale character and take him somewhere different?
1: A couple different reasons. And it was, a, I think, a fairly organic process as I was coming up with the idea for this story. The first idea actually had nothing to do with Rumpelstiltskin, it was all about the world and a world where names were your destiny. That was my first idea. And that Made Mm -hmm. me think of Rumpelstiltskin because Rumpelstiltskin is a fairy tale where the name is very important. One of my writing heroes is Gail Carson Levine, who wrote Ella Mm -hmm. Enchantment. I think is the very best Cinderella retelling there has ever been. I listened to her speak a couple times, and she talked about kind of her process of writing fairy tales. And one of the things that she does is she goes back to the original tale, and she asks questions. She finds the holes. She finds the unanswered questions in that story. So I did that with Rumpelstiltskin. And as I was going back, I realized that all of the questions in the story, most of them anyway, were about Rumpelstiltskin. I was very unsatisfied with him as a character. We really don't learn anything about him, hardly at all. We don't know where he comes from or how he learns to spin straw into gold. We don't even really know why he comes to help the Miller's daughter or why he asks for her firstborn child. And, of course, there are the sinister answers. He's a baby-eating demon. He's going to cook and eat the baby. I couldn't do that for a children's book. (laughs) Maybe he was really lonely. He wanted to take the baby to make his apprentice, or he wanted the baby for political power. But none of them really make him very likable. None of those answers make him a very likable character. And I wondered... Could there be a way to make Rumpelstiltskin likable? And in order to do that, we need someone else who's a bigger villain. And so that kind of made me think about the Miller and the King, who really, there's like solid evidence that they are not good guys. The Miller, he lies about his daughter. He gets her in all this trouble because he says that she can spin straw into gold when she really can't. And then there's the King who threatens to kill the miller's daughter if she doesn't spin the straw into gold so that's horrible and if she manages it he'll marry her I and this i have to think the that most part. sexist thing in the world meanwhile rumple actually he saves her life and yes he asks for her firstborn child but we don't really know why and she does agree he gets unfair treatment in the story i'm gonna retell this and make him a hero and that's kind of what brought me back to his name he never says his name until that very end part. What if, like, throughout the whole story, he didn't know his own name? Under what circumstances might that happen? And and what would his name really mean? You know, what would be the meaning of his name? And what kind of destiny would it give him? And so those were kind of the ideas that I was tossing about as I developed the story and decided to make him a lovable hero instead of baby-eating demon. <laughs>
0: And I love it that it's just everything started with a like, what if or why?
1: Yes. What if and why? I think those are the questions that I'm asking the most when I'm sort of tossing about ideas. Character motivation is very, very important to me. Absolutely. Why are they doing this? What's
0: their wound? What are they trying to come back from? One of the most interesting things about rump is that you know you took the villain and you put it in his point of view and you retold it whenever i'm teaching a writing class one of the things that i hit on really hard is that no one is the bad guy in their own mind everyone is a hero in their own story so the bad guy your villain has a reason for doing everything he or she is doing. And if you were to retell the story from their point of view, they would no longer be the bad guy. That is just how it works. If you've created empathy with the villain, they're not a villain anymore. And that's something I always try to hit really hard with aspiring writers is that you can't just write somebody that's evil because they are evil. There's a reason reason why
1: they are the way they are. And and I love the, the more empathetic villain. You don't necessarily agree with them, but you understand why they are the way that they are.
0: I even apply the but why in real life, like to the point that it makes people crazy when they're just trying to gossip, you know what I mean? They're just trying to give me some light gossip. And I'm like, yeah, but why? It's like, why would they do that? That doesn't make any sense. Why would she do that? Why would he do that? They
1: hate it because you're calling him out on it. You know, it's like, dang it. I just wanted to dish, Yeah, you know? Yes. But the, but why definitely makes you pause and think about what's going on. And that's such an important question I feel like now more than ever always asking well, but why like why do you feel that way why do you think they're doing that that's a really great question for writing and life
0: <laughs> junior years looking up for 16 year old mike her new bff isn't a sadistic control freak her boyfriend adores her and she's learning to bike in the mountains without decapitating herself on a tree but she needs to decide if she's going to continue to be a follower or step out of the shadows and find her own trail. The Trail Rules by Melanie Hoenga is perfect for fans of outdoor adventure, swoony kisses, and figuring out who you really are. Up next, working in the same world for four novels taxing on the creativity or liberating on the world building. WordToKindle.com is an ebook and book formatting service. For self-publishing authors, we make it easy and cheap to self-publish on Amazon and SmashWords. Visit Word to Kindle. That's word-the number two-kindle dot com to find out more. So your follow-up titles, Jack and Red, are similar retellings that take place in the same world, following the stories of Little Red Riding Hood and Jack of Jack and the Beanstalk. You also have another title, Grump, a retelling of everyone's favorite of the Seven Doors," which is coming out May 29th. Is it comforting to have the ability to remain in the same wheelhouse and work with recurring characters, or are you feeling the need to forge new trails?
1: A little bit of both. I did not intend to write Grump. I actually sort of wanted to leave it at red. When I wrote Red, there's a little, a grumpy little dwarf that shows up in that story. And he, at one point, Snow White gets brought up and he calls her a spoiled brat. And I instantly Mm. was like, why would he say that? Why would he call her a spoiled brat? I had to write the Snow White tale from the point of view of the dwarf, whose name, by the way, is not actually grumpy. I can't do that because that's a Disney Licensed character, so he is—he is a grumpy dwarf, and there, of course, is that kind of nod to those Disney characters. And I really wanted to explore the Snow White tale from the dwarfs' point of view. They're such side marginalized characters, but if you think about it, similar to Rump, they're the ones that rescue her. They save her life. So why aren't they the heroes of the story? Why is it the prince who comes and kisses her away, which is, you know, stupid? I really just felt like it would be really so interesting to write this story back to the point of working in the same world. I feel like it's more like I'm working within a similar magic system. Each story that I've written really goes in a different corner of this world. So I almost like working in mm-hmm. a new world in some ways. I have the same rules of magic, and there are some crossovers in the characters, and I plant little Easter eggs in each of the stories. I do really feel like each of these books stand on the own and sort of open up a new world that we didn't see in the other stories. So with Grump, I love the beginning, the opening of the story is the dwarves. They live underground where they are mining for their gems, which they actually eat for their food. That's why they mine the gems. Back to that question of, well, why are they always mining for gems? They don't seem like they're super rich or anything. It's because they eat them. That's their food. That was just so fun. It was almost I feel like in some way, maybe I got a little carried away. (laughs) But I just really enjoyed developing that world within the world that I'd already created. It felt very fresh to me as long as it feels fresh to me. I'm not bored. And I hope that my reader will not be bored. By the time I had finished Grump, I felt very most definitely I, I was ready to start writing something new. Not that I won't ever write more fairy tales, but it, it really did fill time to try something
0: different. They're so funny. And that's something that I know your readership really enjoys. There's just some great humor in there. And some of it is, it's juvenile, but I don't mean that as an insult because you're writing for juveniles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have King Barf in, in, in the rump and the donkey is, Nothing. what's the donkey's name? Which I can, Nothing.
1: I have a funny story yeah. about the donkey, nothing. The donkey was originally named ass. I (laughs) thought that was so hilarious, because well, it's a technical name for a donkey, right? But I thought it was so funny when Rump would say things like I was kicking ass, (laughs) hauling ass up the mountain, right? I just thought it was so hilarious. But it was one of the things, first things that my editor kind of as like, yeah, I think we need to change that. And I was so disappointed. <laughs> I really held tight to that for a while, given that my audience, some of my audience was very young, like I have first and second graders reading reading this book, uh-huh. you know, some humor Well, you know, we have King Barf, and it's funny. And there's there's some potty humor in there, which I personally think is tasteful, maybe as the donkey was crossing a little bit of a line for my particular readership. So that's when I changed the name to nothing, which is delightful and funny. I didn't think it was it wasn't quite as funny to me, but it, it was good enough. <laughs>
0: There's still some great lines about nothing and how he does nothing and he'll never move and oh. things like that. But yeah, I mean, hauling ass up the mountain, that's <laughs> hilarious. I know, I'll
1: just,
0: inside <laughs> joke, I'll just chuckle about it
1: all my life, but it won't be in my book.
0: <laughs> you were right to cut it, though. The last time I was in the elementary library, I <laughs> said, crap,
1: yeah, mean, and right, the kids were right.
0: mortified. I, they were just absolutely blown away that yeah, I had said crap. I,
1: I've gotten used to it now. I mean, I have young kids. When I wrote Rump, my youngest was like two. It's Mm -hmm. not like I'm immune to what's inappropriate for children. I think I just kind of imagined in my head, older kids would be reading my book. From the point of view of a
0: librarian... I can tell you that, especially with the little ones, it's, you got to be so careful because their parents are very protective of them and you don't want to write a book that you can't get in front of yeah, the intended and, and audience. That's,
1: um, that's a really interesting conversation with, with middle grade as you know, people want to give books that reflect different struggles that kids might be going through, but then maybe other kids might not be going through that and their parents don't really want to expose them to that Mm -hmm. so it's tough because I feel like books can be such a help with kids who might be going through a really difficult thing but if those books don't exist because we're afraid for the other kids who aren't going through that thing it's it's really hard I don't know
0: it is hard but that's where the role of the teachers and the librarians and even booksellers come in when they know that a particular child needs that story, they can get that story to those kids. I mean, that's part Unless of their job. It's part of what the we do. Best.
1: Having those personal recommendation. That's what I just feel like librarians are so invaluable that way to be able to connect with the kids, know what's going on in their life, know what they like and help just give them a prod towards that book or that section
0: of books and see what you like. It is such an important role. I think writers tend to think of librarians as gatekeepers in the sense of keeping those gates shut. And most of the time, you're going to find that the librarians are actually the ones that are championing getting those books into their libraries and onto their shelves. The vast majority of librarians aren't going to practice censorship. They might practice selectively who they're going to hand certain books to. They're there to open the gates
1: for you. They're there to open the right door for you not every book is right for every reader at certain times in their lives, but for every child, there's a book that's right for them at that moment.
0: Yeah. And that's the, I think, more accurate way of looking at the gatekeepers, be they teachers or librarians or parents. But a lot of the time when you hear people in the publishing industry, or mostly authors, I would say, talking about gatekeepers, it's more about getting around them. How do we get around the gatekeepers? You don't have to, like the gatekeepers are actually there for you. They're going to help get your book to the right kids. Maybe not all kids, but the right kids.
1: But some of them think that all kids should have access to their books.
0: Right. And you know, I write darker stuff. The female species, I would never give that to like a sixth grader. I probably wouldn't even give it to some freshman. I have a
1: 14-year-old daughter, and that is something I think about a lot. She's ready for some more mature stuff. You know, she asked if she could read a certain series that right. I really enjoyed. And I said, I think you will really mm-hmm. like it one day, but I don't think you're quite ready for it yet.
0: And you're the best judge yeah. of that as her parent. You know her. You recently had a cover reveal for your next release, The Mona Lisa Key, which is the first in a new series for you called Time Castaways.
1: It's quite different from the fairy tales. It's still middle grade, still fantasy, but I think it actually goes to a slightly older audience than my fairy tales. It begins in modern day New York with three siblings. They're actually very close in age because the oldest is adopted. And then he has two slightly younger twin siblings. So they're three siblings that are quite close in age. One day they board a subway train by themselves, which is against the rules. Their parents do not allow them to do that. So they have broken the rules, board a subway train, Mm -hmm. and it happens to be a time-traveling train. So these kids go on this awesome time-traveling adventure, And learn all kinds of things about history, but also their own past and potentially their own future, and maybe what involvement their family has with this ship and its mysterious captain. Very adventurous. I like to think of it as pretty educational. It takes you through some really fun locations. The Mona Lisa Key kind of nods to Paris and the Louvre. In 1911, the Mona Lisa was actually stolen. From the Louvre, the Italian Vincenzo Hmm. Perugia, he stole the Mona Lisa and it was missing for two years before it was recovered. I did a lot of research on that event. Fascinating, actually, how easily he stole it from the museum, why he stole it. And so there's, there's a lot about that and other times in history that I find really fascinating Elizabethan history travel to India there's these underground vaults filled with treasures, and that's a real thing in this temple in India it was really really fun for me to write I full of adventure great characters while developing these characters <laughs> and the
0: relationships lastly an appreciation of art being underwhelmed by the Mona Lisa and where to find Liesl online. I've been to the Louvre. I remember seeing the Mona Lisa and being underwhelmed. Underwhelmed. Absolutely. (laughs) Yep. And, and really feeling like what's the big deal.
1: (laughs) That's one of the cool things about this story is that the, one of the reasons why the Mona Lisa is so famous is because of this theft.
0: Probably one of the reasons why he stole it is because it's so small.
1: <laughs> he mistakenly believed that France stole it because da Vinci was an Italian artist. So he believed that it belonged to Italy. He felt justified in stealing the Mona Lisa so he really felt like it belonged to Italy. I do note that when when the kids are seeing the Mona Lisa... The main character is kind of like, oh, it's so small. I thought it would be much bigger. And it's the stories behind art that make them so famous and so interesting. And this is one of those stories. When
0: I was in college, I took an art history class. I never really understood art. I never particularly liked it, to be honest with you. I was like, oh, cool. I mean, there would be one or two paintings. I'd be like, that's awesome. But never really appreciated it. And then I took an art history class. Friday mornings and Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m., right? It was awful. Terrible time. But I loved the class. The teacher just, she loved art so much, and she just would show us slides of art and just talk about it and then give us the history behind the painting and tell us about the artist and tell us about the noble women and men that were being depicted and how to decode medieval paintings and what it means when someone is standing this way and all these different things. And all of a sudden, I started to realize how complicated it all was.
1: Maybe we think about writing, the layers that go into the writing process and imagery and words and how things can be so evocative. I really appreciate art. I come from an artist family. My dad, my brother, and my sister are all fantastic artists. And so I feel like I kind of appreciate it through them. Like they can explain
0: things to me that I would never get on my own. That was one class that I ended up just really affecting me in ways that I was not expecting. And I really appreciated that class. Since you write for middle grade audiences and time castaways, is looking to be for a little bit older, slightly. Do you think the readers from Rump, Jack and Red, which were all New York Times bestsellers, will follow you over to Time Castaways? Or do you think that you're looking for a new readership since some of your middle grade readers that started all the way back in 2013 with Rump may have aged out? Or do you think they're still going to be attracted to this new series? I've actually been reading
1: my very last pass of copy edits and realizing it really is geared towards an older audience. And I think a lot of the readers that started with Rump, it's a very natural place for them to go. I am a little concerned. I have a lot of teachers that actually follow my work, you know, have read Rump and my other books as read-alouds in their classrooms with their young kids, second grade classes, you know. I think Time Castaways is a little old for that readership. I do worry a little bit that they're going to pick this up and they're going to start reading it to their second graders and they're going to not even get it because it's a little more complex. And there are some terms, I think, and some things going on that probably would go above the head of a second grader. So I think it's a very natural place to go for some of the readers that have read Rump and Jack but I don't think it will be a natural place for some of those
0: younger classrooms. Well, I will say, having seen the cover art, that it does look older. Does it? Yeah. Not that it looks older in general, but it looks older than the audience intended for Rump, Jack, and Red, and Grump. I would definitely assume teachers would look at that and instinctually realize this is is not for my second grade class.
1: My fairy tales are true middle grade, like they are for eight to 12. And even you can read aloud to a younger audience too. the time castaways, I think is truly like 10 and up.
0: What's up next for you? You've got grump coming out in May. And then Mona Lisa key, which is the first in time castaways is that do you know how many books are going to be in that series?
1: It's a trilogy. So I'm working on the second I've been really excited to continue the series and with these characters and develop some new characters and for them to go to new places, you know, time travel. I was really excited to take on this project in time travel because I love time travel. I love A Wrinkle in Time, I love Rebecca Stead's When You Reach Me. I just think the concept of time travel is so fascinating. Even from a scientific point of view, I've been reading some books about Einstein's theory of relativity and time travel. It is way, way more difficult than I really gave it credit for when I took it on. And part of the difficulty is that it just opens up so many possibilities. I mean, you can time travel, you can go anywhere, anytime. So where are you going to choose? Like, how am I going to narrow this down? I want to go everywhere every time. So trying to narrow it down and, and get a focus has been, particularly challenging. But why? So why are they going to go there? Having more possibility is not always better. You really have to find a way to create some parameters to rein in your story and and give it some focus. It can be really difficult with time travel, not to mention creating the rules of time travel and creating some parallelism. That's extremely difficult. I am not engaged if I'm not being really challenged. And the struggle is sort of what makes it good and exciting for me to be able to struggle to find the answers in my writing. I feel like
0: sometimes that's what ends up being the best part of it. I learn so much when I'm writing because of the research. You just end up going down little rabbit holes and Two thirds of it doesn't even end up in the book, but it doesn't matter because I learned something.
1: Nothing's ever wasted. That's for sure. I feel like two thirds of what I write <laughs> doesn't end up in the, when we talked about giving a proposal to our editor and, and it changes a lot to the end. Even my first draft, I feel like I rewrite 80% of it Sometimes, Where can listeners find you online? They can go to my website, com. Twitter. I am at Liesl Shirtliff find me and interact and I do like to interact with my readers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, anywhere. So that's where you can find me.
0: Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting gofundme.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist.